we are going to open up the Word tonight, and we are going to examine uh, one of the more important passages, I think, that comes out in, in Scripture. Uh, before you, we get into Ephesians 5, though, I want you to turn back, actually, to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Here, uh, Acts chapter 19, I'll get there too, gives us a really, uh, a really good look at this city of Ephesus, which I think will give us a good uh, sort of backdrop, a good background into understanding sort of the hardships that Paul is talking to as he's going to go through and give this encouragement to the church at Ephesus. So if you go to Acts chapter 19, this is sort of in the middle, so to speak, of Paul's time here at this city. As we know from later on in the book of Acts, we, he eventually spends up to two years teaching uh, this city, teaching these, this church, and he has a great effect on Paul personally, but also a great effect on these Ephesian Christians as well, as, as we'll see. But go to Acts 19, look at verse 17. It says, and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them, uh, fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it fifty thousand pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So here in the city, there's a great revival breaking out in Ephesus. So much so that there's public confessions of faith being made, as it says. And also, I love that curious detail that even magicians are burning their books. These sort of sorcerers and practitioners of dark arts, they're burning their books. And why? Because they had found Jesus. As it says there, that, that mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. It was prevailing in the hearts of these uh, Ephesians as, as a great stir was being spread about for this truth, for this gospel. Jump down to verse 23. As it says, in the same time there were arose no small stir about that way. No small stir. A great disturbance was happening because of the gospel. And what is this great disturbance? Well, let me read the next couple of verses. Look at what happens. You have this revival breaking out in the city. A great many people are confessing that Jesus is Lord. And look at what happens. And for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. So you have here, you have this curious sort of rebuttal, a rebuttal happening by this silversmith, Demetrius, who is distressed by this other movement happening about Jesus. And what is he saying here? Why is he frustrated? He's frustrated because his business is suffering. 
He's frustrating because he is not able to craft as many little miniature figurines for this goddess Diana as he used to. <laughs> so you have to see here, the, the, the city of Ephesus was, ha- was, was home of this great temple for the goddess Diana, also known as the goddess Artemis. And this was an elaborate temple structure, elaborate and ornate construction, so much so that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and Ephesus was home to it. And worship of her, though, this goddess Diana, was anything but beautiful. In fact, Diana is known as the goddess of sexuality. So much so that the city of Ephesus, there was rampant immorality running about in the city. These people were not, they were not known for being the most moral. They were not the most chaste people. And such is what Demetrius is actually kind of furthering because his whole business was found in crafting miniature idols of this goddess of Diana for people to worship. So you can see he has a conflict of interest. If Paul is trying to eradicate worship of this god, that he would have an interest in that. His business is now in jeopardy. Everything is being frustrated. And so if you read on verses 28 down through verse 41, you can read about how he stirs up a crowd and a riot eventually erupts. Look at verse 28. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. A great A great stir is being made because of the gospel, because of this false belief in this false God. And you can see right here, right away, you can see the effects of the gospel that it has on men's souls. How some are responding to it in faith and in truth and in genuineness. You have others who are responding to it with much resistance and hatred and violence. You can see... Demetrius, he's threatened because his way of life is being threatened because of the gospel. And this is the background to Ephesians. This is the city that Paul was was ministering in. It's the background of this letter, the book of Ephesians. This letter to this cherished church of Paul's own starting here, but I want, you, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we are going through, because I think with that little vignette in mind, you, it'll make a lot more sense to you, the sort of darkness and the sort of um, violence and sin that Paul goes on to describe here as he writes in chapter 5 of Ephesians. But you have to know, Ephesians was a letter written to very cherished Christians that Paul had spent a lot of time with, as we already saw. You can go to Acts chapter 20 and you can read about his departure when he is saying goodbye to the elders of, of Ephesus uh, at the city of Miletus. You can see the emotion that's in their conversation. It was a close relationship, just not just a teacher teaching some uh, newly uh, sort of impassioned students. This was a true pastor to a church and he's departing to move forward with the gospel It's an emotional scene. And such you can see the emotion in Paul's heart as he writes to this letter to this church. Just as why I think all the way through you notice that he calls them children. These are very dear Christians to him. But like 
many of the other letters that Paul wrote, uh, Paul writes, Ephesians is very much structured in a very specific way. And by that I mean, if you read Ephesians, you will find that the very first uh, three chapters, Ephesians one through three, have a very, uh, very formative structure, and that they are very elaborately centered on the gospel. It's expounding the richness of God's love. That's where you get Ephesians chapter 3, I think it's verse 18, where it talks about that, uh, or verse 17, Ephesians 3, 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God sort of concludes Paul's sort of uh, dissertation, so to speak, on this love of God which passes knowledge, and he spends three chapters expounding it. And then he gets to sort of another new transitionary uh, sort of moment when he gets to chapter 4, which is talking about the behavior of the Christian, which is born out of this love of God. This, this pattern of preaching gospel and then preaching what is actually the effects of that gospel is the pattern of Paul. Throughout his letters, you can see it in Rome, in the book of Romans, you can see it in the book of Philippians. Almost all of them follow this pr- uh, pretty sound structure. The structure is, <laughs> everything in the Christian life is rooted in God's love. Everything else is the outpouring of that love. And he wants these believers here to keep that structure sound. You cannot get outside of that foundation. Notice if you go to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 where he writes, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Here we get that wonderful good news that Paul writes so eloquently. And he's really articulating quite well what the fact of the gospel is. Is this, that the gospel saves you, yes, just as you are, but it doesn't leave you that way. It saves you right where you are. Yes, in the deadness of your sins and your trespasses, in all of your weakness, in all of your conversation, that is uh, your lifestyle, as he says, that it is, that is totally fulfilling the lusts of your flesh. That's where grace rescues you. But as he goes on to articulate, it quickens you. It's a King James word, which means it makes you alive. It has that sense of the spirit is now indwelling in you and now you are alive, yes, in the spirit and with the spirit too. What? That's where we get chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Paul here is articulating so well. This powerful truth that grace saves you, but also it changes you. 
It changes how you live because it makes you alive. It quickens you in all of your bones and facets. And now you are made to, as it says there, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And that's where you get into Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 and 6, where it shifts from sort of this conversation about the Christian's position in Christ, which is one of love, to now the Christian's practice, which is one of walking in love. And so we have to ask that question then as we get to chapter 5, a very good one. How does the love of God, the love which passes all understanding, how does that inform our walk? How does that inform our behavior? How does that inform our lifestyle? Well, I think he, he, he says it so well at the beginning of chapter 5. As he says, there be therefore followers of God as dear children. I love that verse. I love that verse because, again, he references these Christians as children. He's emphasizing the fact that these are dear believers to him. They are ones that he cherishes. But also I love the fact that this word followers there has a great more fuller meaning if you look it up in the Greek. In the Greek, actually the word there is imitators. Be ye imitators of God as if you are his children. Which is just a wonderful picture. Have you ever noticed your child or a child copying their parents' mannerisms? And they do it almost subliminally. They do it almost without even thinking about it. It's just sort of instinctual. They've seen their dad or their mom do this certain mannerism and they assume that that's how you do it. They watch. They look. They imitate. They copy. I've seen or I've heard many times when I was growing up that people would say, that's just like Mike when you, when you were at his age, <laughs> my dad. Everyone says that I'm a spitting image of my dad. I don't know if that's true, but I always think of this verse and I always think of Michael Jordan. I love watching old Michael Jordan highlights. I used to have this Michael Jordan, the, the, you know, the greatest basketball player ever. I had one of his highlight reels on VHS, and I used to watch it all the time. It was called Michael Jordan, Come Fly With Me. I loved it. It was great. It was made back in the 80s, and was, it was so good. And you know what Michael Jordan is famous for? Sticking out his tongue when he is really focusing on the game of basketball. There's, you can just look it up. He's, he always has his tongue out. When he is focusing on the game, when he's really serious about getting into the game and making sure his team wins. And they tell the story of where that comes from in this documentary, which I love, is he watched his dad. He watched his dad work on cars. When his dad was working in a car and focusing, he would have his tongue out while he concentrated. (laughs) And now Michael Jordan, the most famous basketball player ever, is doing it because of his dad. Because he watched his dad. He imitated his dad. (laughs) He copied him. And I love thinking about that picture as we read Paul's words. Look at your heavenly father as if you are his child. Copy him. (laughs) Copy that sort of love. It's not out of force. It's out of instinct. (laughs) Because you love your father. We copy Christ's love. However imperfect that copy may be. And how do we copy him? How do we imitate him? Well, he goes on and says, look at what he says, verse 1 again. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. 
As Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sweet and a sacrifice, excuse me, to God for a sweet smelling savor. We copy God most preciously, most perfectly, even if we do it imperfectly, by walking in love and forgiveness. Notice that you have to keep that in mind. As Paul is here writing that we aren't slaves or employees. We don't copy God out of sort of some fear of punishment or dread that he will, uh, will reprimand us if we don't. We copy the Father out of love. Again, it goes back to what he had talked about all throughout the first three chapters. That the love which passes understanding is our motivation to imitate him in our own walk of love. We imitate him out of an impulse by keeping close to him. You see here, the more we see ourselves as children, the more we will realize that God's love can never be taken away. And such is what keeps our imitation of him, our copying of his love, rooted and grounded in him. It's his love. It's his love which motivates our walk of love. This is the Christian's duty. Which brings me to, I think, two points that I want to make out of this text. Two points that I think uh, apply so greatly to where we are. But also, as Paul was writing to these Ephesian Christians, remember what they are dealing with. A society that was so filled with lust and hatred of their gospel. So filled with everything that was immoral. Against what they were proclaiming as true. And he's calling them to it. Don't be dissuaded. Yes, despite what is going on around you, walk in love. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called. Imitate your father. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fashionable or popular. But imitate your father by walking in love. And how do we do that? How do we imitate God and copy Christ in an age of just rampant darkness? I think we do it in two ways. First of all, if you go down to verse 8, I think we, we could do it by this way. Don't be afraid of the dark. Look at verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Don't be afraid of the dark. Sometimes following Jesus means following him into the darkness of this world. Such is what these Ephesians Christians were, were, were encouraged to do, actually. They were surrounded by all of this moral darkness that was going on around them. By people living for everything that was opposed to God and his word. And what is their calling? Walk, as he says there, as children of light. It's a command. It's a command to engage the world around them. See what Paul is doing? He's not calling this church to isolate themselves, to alienate themselves, to just go back and live in a monastery. That way they don't get tainted by the world's darkness. Actually, he's calling them to walk as children of light and influence the darkness with the light that is in them. It's a call for disassociation. As he says, be, verse 7, be not ye therefore partakers with them. 
Don't join in their darkness. Don't partner with the way that they're living. Influence them. You want to copy the Lord, the Lord that saved you? You want to imitate the love that has passed all knowledge that is in you? Walk as children of light. Yes, into the darkness. Don't be afraid of the dark. The light is only appreciated as it illumines dark places. A light is ineffective in the daytime. Ever tried to light a firework at midday? It's not very brilliant. It's kind of rather a dud. And it could be the best firework you could ever imagine. It would look really piddly. But if you light it at midnight, it brights up and it illumines the whole night sky. And in a similar way, I think we too, as Christians... Our primary sphere of influence is with those who do not know the Lord. With those who, yes, as Paul is going to describe, are living for themselves. That are living for the passions and the lusts of their own flesh. That are living for darkness. The usefulness of light is appreciated as it illumines the darkness. And this is just what Jesus did. Remember if you go back to verse 2 and it says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. See, just as Jesus entered our dark world of sin, so were these Ephesians called to re-enter the world and showcase that same love. The love which reached out into the darkness to bring up and raise up and to redeem children of light. The same sort of ministry, the same sort of calling, the same sort of commission is on our shoulders. It's not a license to go back to old ways. He's not telling these Ephesians it's okay if you go back to the same sort of living. No, he's saying walk differently. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called. Walk in love. Look at verse 9. Or I'll read verse 8 again. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. It's a very specific charge. The Lord has made this change in you. Walk as what the Lord has done. Walk proving what he has done in you. And you can sense Paul's urgency. Look at verse 14. As he says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. You can sense Paul's urgency as he's writing this message. This world around you is filled with darkness. Redeem the time. Walk as children of light. Don't, as he says again back in verse 7, don't partake of their darkness. Don't join in their type of living. As it, I get this picture. The picture, I think, that most accurately describes the Christian life. Not most accurately, one of the pictures. It's, it's like a firefighter going into a burning building. 
There's a sense of urgency as you are a firefighter looking around for someone to redeem, someone to rescue and save and pull out. You don't go in there and sit and have a cup of tea waiting for the house to burn down around you. There is an urgent sense of mission. Paul is calling them to the same thing. Go back into the world and influence them with the light that is in you. Notice again as he says, but now are ye light in the Lord. That's what they were there for. We bear the true light. And this is our same mission. It's a light that doesn't reside in us. It's a light that we reflect. Go to, or let me just read this verse. You can just write it down and and you can read it later. It's John chapter 9, verse 5. John 9, verse 5. Jesus says this. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That light of the world is the light that you and I carry. The light that saves us, that makes us children of light, is no less than that light of the world, which is Jesus himself. So as we go into the dark, we don't have to be afraid. Why? Because he is with us. The light that we carry is his light. The light that illumines the sin and the darkness of this world that pushes back evil is the light of the world, Jesus Christ himself. Don't be afraid of the dark. But also, number two, don't get used to the dark. Notice verse three, back in Ephesians five, Paul describes what doesn't, what doesn't live up to sort of this walking in love. He has commissioned these Ephesian Christians to imitate their father by walking in love as Christ did. And notice what he says in verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Jump down to verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Here. One of the other ways that we imitate Christ by walking in love is not letting our light get used to the dark. (laughs) We enter into the world, but don't let your lights get used to it. You know, Natalie can contest to this. I have really awful eyesight. (laughs) Like really bad. My, I don't know what my prescription is on my glasses. I'm not wearing my glasses tonight. I'm wearing my contacts. But um, it's, it's, not very, it's not very good at all. Um, and I also, though, along with just having bad eyes, I have a really uh, slow time adjusting to dark, adjusting to darkness. Like if you turn off the lights. Isn't it amazing, by the way? You turn off the lights and your eyes can adjust to the darkness. 
So eventually, after a while, I was looking up how this is done. You turn off the lights and a million photoreceptors in your eyeballs start working to try and process the low light levels that are in sort of the room that you're in. And all of a sudden, after a while, you can see. After a while, it's a different time period for everyone. Some people can see a little bit better in darkness. Natalie has great night vision, by the way. I stumble all the time when I'm up, up in, in the night, but my eyes are really slow adjusting. They don't acclimate very well. But eventually, generally speaking, you can see sort of your surroundings, so you don't stub your toe in the middle of the night, hopefully. I think it's a miracle. It's a miracle of biology, of just creation, that God made your eyes be able to do that. That eventually your eyes get used to the dark so you can see. And while that is, I think, a really good bio- biological sort of marvel and something that we should uh, truly be in awe at, it makes it for a very terrible spiritual motto. Don't let your eyes get used to the dark. Don't let your light as the light that God has given you get used to the surroundings that it's in. That's Paul's warning here. As he says back in verse 11, have no fellowship with these unfruitful works of darkness. I know all that's around you is pressing in on you and it's making you feel like everything is dark and bad and terrible. Don't let your eyes adjust to this world's state. This world's darkness, this world's love of those things that ought to be only done in secret, as he says. Grace makes us different, as we already looked at. It makes us walk as children of light. Which is opposed to darkness. And that's what he goes on to describe. Back in those verses, verses 3 through 7. What does living in darkness look like? It's all about self. It's all about making light of all of these things. It's living for yourself and in uncleanness and covetousness. It's all trying to be known for me and myself and I. It's all turned in on what is good for me. And such is why he turns, as he says, as opposed to the unfruitfulness of darkness. What does he say to live for? As he says, the fruit of the spirit, verse 9. <laughs> The fruit of the Spirit. The world is defined by self-concern and self-indulgence. Whereas the Christian is defined by self-sacrifice and love which seeks to redeem. This is Paul's charge to these Ephesians. Don't get used to the dark. If you have a smartphone, I'll take mine out and I'll show you. Well, you can't really see it because it's all black. <laughs> if I had Natalie's, it's white. You'd be able to see it. There's a tiny little dot at the, at the top here. It's called an ambient light sensor. And what happens is if you take your phone out in broad daylight, this little sensor at the top of your phone, it can actually adjust the phone's brightness to match your surroundings. So if you're taking it out when there's a lot of light around... It needs to be brighter so it can match sort of the level that you're in. Or if you take your phone out in the middle of the night because you get a random text message or you just need to check your phone at the middle of the night, which maybe you do. 
Your phone will adjust. It doesn't need to be as bright or else you're going to get blinded. (laughs) This ambient light sensor is another marvel of modern technology. It can adjust your phone's settings so that way it can make sure that the brightness of your phone's screen is accurate. Is accurate to your ambient surroundings. I would say that sometimes I think we live as Christians with sort of the same sort of spiritual light sensor. In which our witness, our brightness dims depending on who we're around. It gets brighter when we're at church. (laughs) Because we know we can be really bright Christians. But when we're around that certain group of people, it gets a little bit dimmer. It gets a little bit, it's not quite as bright. Because we don't feel like we need to be as (laughs) Jesus-y. We don't need to be as Christian. Our spiritual light sensor, (laughs) it wavers sometimes. And I confess the same thing. Confess that sometimes we let that sensor inside of us dim depending on those we are around. And Paul is saying, (laughs) essentially, don't let your light get used to the darkness that's around you. Don't measure how bright you should be based on where you are. Your stand for the truth should be the same no matter the setting that you're in. No matter the vocation wherewith you have been called, as Paul says, walk worthy of it. We stand for the truth of God and for the grace of God, which calls us out of darkness. And it calls us to walk as children of light. And we are here. And I think Paul, you could sum up Paul's sort of charge here about redeeming the time and walking as children of light with just that phrase. Turn up the brightness. (laughs) Ephesians, turn up your brightness. This world around you, it doesn't want to do anything with Jesus. It doesn't want to do anything with the gospel or with the truth. But walk on purpose. Walk with mission. Walk with knowing that Jesus is the light that he goes with you. Yes, to expose the darkness, as he says there in verses 8 through 11. To reprove them. But also to epitomize. The same love which rescued you is the same love we have been commissioned to, yes, mirror in the world. This is Paul's encouragement to this church. This church he so loved. Copy your your Savior by walking in love, by not getting used to the dark, but not being afraid of it either. Knowing that when you go there, that's where Jesus has called you. That this is where your Savior has brought you. Yes, these days are evil. And we can say the same for our day. (laughs) Say the same for our moment. But we've been given the same calling. And guess what? We have the same Savior. The same Christ. The same Lord. The same light of the world has never stopped burning. And we have been called, yes, to enter into the world. To showcase and show forth that glorious light. It's the light of Jesus. 
the seeker and the savior of the lost. So I'll just summarize Paul. Let's turn up the brightness. Don't let our light get dark. Don't let it get used to it. And don't be afraid of it. Let us pray.